Scripture reading today comes from Galatians 6, 6 to 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You may be seated. Sowing and reaping is our topic uh, for this afternoon. Now, if you're like me, I want to be gracious to you because uh, you need to be gracious to me. I grew up thinking that vegetables came from the grocery store, uh, that they made the vegetables there, uh, they packaged the vegetables there, and you go and buy them there, and the whole thing happens at the grocery store. Now, some of you are, are perhaps more intelligent than I am, which is not difficult, uh, but you know uh, that what Paul is talking about here, he's using an agricultural metaphor. Again, I'm going to be really simple, and this is for me. Just, just humor me for a second. When he talks about sowing, he's talking about planting a seed. Are you with me so far? He's putting a seed in the ground. Everybody sort of look at me blankly like I'm an idiot or something. He's talking about putting a seed in the ground. When he talks about reaping, he's talking about harvesting that seed. And the very basic principle here is this. You, you get out what you put in. You get out what you put in. So the idea is if you put in a corn seed, if that's even a thing, I think it's a thing. You get corn back. If you plant an apple tree, you get apples on that apple tree. You're, you're tracking with me so far? You, you get out of it what you put into it. Now, taken very broadly, very generally like this, there's nothing particularly Christian about that, is there? Like, athletes know this. Athletes know this. In the off-season, you put in the work to reap the benefits during the season. Uh, if you're a student, you, you know this. If you don't study for the exam, you will reap the benefits of that during the exam. Right? We all know this sort of generally speaking. In fact, almost every, every major religious, every major spiritual movement in the world really has some version, some iteration of sowing and reaping. It's this widely ascribed to general principle that I think we all agree upon. If you're here this afternoon and you're a, a spiritual person, maybe you saw the text and you heard the text being read and you thought to yourself, oh, like, that's karma. That's how, that's how karma works, right? You put positivity into the universe, and it comes around like a boomerang. That was my boomerang noise. And it comes around, uh, and you get positivity back, right? Or, or you put negativity into the universe, negative moral action, negative thought, and you get negativity back. Oh, you thought that that's, that's karma. Uh, maybe you heard the text being read, and you thought to yourself, you know, I'm not sure about these spiritual things, but, but I've seen that work in my life. Uh, this is the, what we could call the utilitarian view uh, of sowing and reaping. I don't know about the spiritual dimension of it, but I've just seen it work. I remember when I was in high school, it, it's crazy. I distinctly remember the moment when I realized, again, this is probably showing you how dumb I am. Uh, when I realized that if I was nice to people, people would be nice to me. And I was like, Pfft. This was this mind-blowing epiphany for me. If I was generally nice to people, generally speaking, people would be nice to me in return. People would be kind to me. If I was a jerk to people, generally speaking, people would be a jerk to me uh, in return. 
So there's the, the karma view of sowing and reaping, sort of the utilitarian, it works view. You don't know about the spiritual stuff. I just want a nice life, so I'll do this. And then some of you grew up in a Christian tradition uh, that teaches something like this. Uh, when the offering basket comes around, uh, you put your money into it. And that is like a seed. And, and you put that money into it, and, and that's your seed. And what's going to happen is a harvest is coming, and God's going to give you more money in return. Some of you grew up in that tradition, and that's a very prevalent teaching within the Christian world. Uh, all these things considered is why we have to spend some time this afternoon unpacking what is Paul talking about when he says sowing and reaping in Galatians 6. And so if you'll let me, and you really have no choice in the matter, uh, but if you'll let me, I want to spend a, a, a good chunk of our time this afternoon unpacking the biblical understanding of sowing and reaping. How does the Bible differ from the world's understanding of sowing and reaping? And then once we've seen that, once we see, we've seen the Galatians 6 understanding of sowing and reaping, then we're going to look at three fields. Three fields where we sow and reap in our lives as followers of Jesus. First, the church. Second, our own personal lives. And then third and finally, the world or the broader community. Christ City East Fan, you guys ready? Yeah, a little bit? No. Josh is ready. Thanks for the head nod, bud. How are you and I to understand the principle of sowing and reaping in Galatians 6? How does the biblical understanding differ from a cultural understanding? Let me give you four distinctions. First, while it is true, and, and we just heard it read, that Paul is now saying, you reap what you sow, it is also true that the rest of Galatians could be summarized uh, you reap what you did not sow. Isn't that also true? The whole point of Galatians up until chapters 5 and 6 is that God did not save you because of your good works. You did not do anything. You grab hold of Jesus by faith. That's it. What we deserve, we read in Galatians 3, is the curse. It is the curse that leads to death. But that's not what happened. The gospel of grace is that Jesus takes what we deserve and we get the reward that he deserves. That Jesus takes our sin and our garbage and our stuff and our failings and in return we get Jesus' success. Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' obedience. It's counted towards us. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the great exchange. Like Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf or for us in our place. He takes our cursedness. We get his, his blessedness. You and I have sown sin, and yet in Jesus we've reaped salvation. Now, if we pluck Galatians 6 out of its context, like you get what you deserve tries to do, we lose the gospel. We lose the gospel. It's gone. We lose the gospel because we lose grace. We lose unmerited and lavish love poured out on us even while we were still sinners. And, and what's left, what, what, what remains, sort of what's there, uh, is a ruthless, works-based system where we try desperately to either put down the other or lift up ourselves. Didn't we see that last week? Outside of the gospel, what are we doing? Trying to put down another person, drag them down, or lift up ourselves. Get ourselves there. And if you don't believe me, go on the internet at any time. Ever. 
Go go on any social media at any time. Go on Twitter, I dare you. In our current climate, grace, extending to people what they do not deserve, it's not a high value. So Paul's reaping and sowing should not be interpreted, I sow good works and so I reap salvation, I reap justification. Rather, what we have here, what's happening in this text is a warning to us. It's a warning to us, Christ City. It's a shot across the bow, if you will. Paul wants us to stand up straight. He wants to light a fire underneath us. Paul's warning us that if we continue to sow to the flesh, we'll see this, it will result in eternal destruction. He's warning us. And we should hear it as a warning. The second thing we should note as we seek to distinguish biblical reaping and sowing from from karma in particular is that God does not deal with us impersonally as karma does. Notice, what's the basis that Paul gives for sowing and reaping? Why is this true that we reap what we sow? What does he say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It's intensely personal language, isn't it? It's not the universe will not be mocked or some impersonal law will not be mocked. He says here, he says, God, God will not be mocked. The God who deals personally with his creation will not be mocked. The God who is intimately involved with his creation will not be fooled. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. If we're not careful, we can think of the world as deists. Now, deists believe that God set the world in motion, and now he's separate from his creation. He doesn't involve himself. He's sort of just separate from it. He lets it kind of happen. He, he wound it up, if you will, like a clock, and, and he let, let it go. It's going. He doesn't really control it. Yet the biblical narrative couldn't speak uh, any more contrary to the, the, the world of the deist. Now, Hebrews 1 says that God upholds and sustains the very universe by his power. That we are here, sitting here today, and our molecules are bound together because God is sustaining us and upholding us by the very word of his power. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. In Psalm 103, verse 6, we're reminded that it's the Lord, it's the Lord who works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. It's not karma, it's not the universe, it's not some impersonal law, it's the personal hand of the personal God who deals personally and intimately with his creation, who is involved in every little detail, and and nothing escapes his watch, and nothing escapes his hand, and nothing escapes his eye. Third, not only should we avoid the mistake of the deist, we should also avoid the mistake of the ancient Greeks. Paul bringing up sowing and reaping wouldn't have been entirely foreign to his Greek listeners. Wouldn't have been strange. Uh, For the Greeks, they had a whole pantheon of gods. And in particular, there was this god named uh, Nemesis. No relation to the hipster coffee shop downtown. But the god Nemesis was the goddess of retribution. And so if you did something wrong... Well, well, how how is this dealt with? Nemesis comes after you. She gets you. If you don't appease her, she'll get you. The same with the harvest. Same with the hunt. 
Same with all fertility things. These are all gods that need to be appeased. And so sowing and reaping is very much in the mind of the Greek listening to this. And I think that's not all too foreign to our current culture. And in fact, I think this is exactly how the prosperity gospel works. This is exactly how the prosperity gospel works. Put a hundred bucks in the offering plate. Sow that seed. Scratch God's back. He'll scratch your back. It's a tit-for-tat sort of relationship. The God of the Greeks and the God of the prosperity gospel are one and the same. They're puny, they're small, they're needy, they're vindictive, and they're not worthy of our worship. Fourth thing. Sowing and reaping in Galatians 6 looks primarily, not entirely, but primarily at the harvest to come at the end of the age when Jesus returns. Sowing and reaping biblically takes a long view, if you will, of human history. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Paul writes there, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In verse 9, And let us not grow weary from doing good, for in due season, in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This word for corruption we see in, in, in verse 8 is probably better translated destruction. And, and its pair is eternal life. And, and together we have Paul contrasting two things. Eternal destruction and eternal life. The due season of verse, of verse 9 is the return of Jesus. And so if we can summarize it like this. Paul is saying if we sow to the Spirit we can reap eternal life. Entrance into the kingdom of God. If we sow to the flesh and persist in sowing to the flesh, we will reap, Paul says, eternal destruction. For in due season, he says, we will reap. Now, if you don't believe in an afterlife, then it makes all the sense in the world to hold to a karmic system that emphasizes here and now benefits. Because what else do we have other than the here and now? Other than this moment, other than today. Again, we'll see in a moment that there are certainly here and now benefits to following Jesus. But the Christian, as I said, has a God's eye view of things. Looks only, not only rather, to the rewards of this life, but the rewards of the life to come. Uh, to borrow language from Jesus, which is always a good idea, these rewards are treasures in heaven. To quote a scholar on these treasures, the treasures in the new heaven and the new earth are wonderful beyond our wildest expectation. Such treasures cannot be assailed by corrosion or theft. For whatever reason, and I don't know why it is, it has become out of fashion to talk in the church about being motivated by heavenly treasures. We, we don't really talk about it, do we? Yet Jesus, Paul, John, the author of Hebrews, these inspired by the Holy Spirit New Testament writers, all encouraged Christians, all, all spurred Christians on by reminding them that there are rewards in the age to come. 
There are rewards to be had that are beyond our wildest expectation. And so I want to encourage you this morning, Christian, sow and reap in view of the rewards of the age to come. Rewards that will not rot. Rewards that cannot be stolen. These are four distinctions, four distinctions separating the biblical view of sowing and reaping from our our cultural understanding. Now here's where I want to nuance it a little bit if you'll let me. I think there is a way in which biblical sowing and reaping is not entirely unlike sowing and reaping as our culture understands it. I think there's actually some overlap there. Let me explain. See, not only would the Greeks have an idea of sowing and reaping in their mind as Paul is speaking, but the Jews listening, particularly those Jews familiar with the Old Testament, would also have an idea of sowing and reaping in their mind. They would have passages like Job 4. Job 4, 8 to 9 says this, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Or they would have thought of passages like Proverbs 22. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. And so the Greeks had a version of sowing and reaping. The Jews had a version of sowing and reaping. We have a version of sowing and reaping. What's going on here? Why does it seem like every culture and every time has some understanding of you get in what you put out? Rather, you, you put, what am I saying? You get out of the ground what you put into it. That's what I'm saying. Why is it? Why is that true? What we see throughout the scriptures, indeed what our experience confirms, is that, the God, is that God's created order reflects his character. That the truth of who God is is woven into the very fabric of the universe. So that all people, all people, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, all people can recognize that something is true about this world. Namely, that we often see people, not always, but we often see people in this life reap the fruit of their actions and thoughts, both good and bad. All people recognize this. You, You can date this in all sorts of ancient documents throughout time. People have seen this pattern. And so if you're here today and you're a big believer in karma, you're a big believer in what goes around comes around, I don't actually think you're that far off the truth. I think you're close. Karma is trying to get at something that is actually there. Karma is trying to offer an explanation for the truth. Karma is trying to sing a song that it can vaguely recall. But that's all it can do. I think if I really, truly, deep down believed in karma, I don't think I would get out of bed in the morning. I need the good news, and I think we, Christ City, East Vancouver, we need the good news that in putting our faith in Jesus, we have reaped what we did not sow. We need the good news that I and we are not cogs in an impersonal machine called the universe destined to atone for our sins when they make their way back around to us. And you need the good news this afternoon that the God of the Bible isn't small and needy and petty, that he doesn't work on a mutual back-scratching agreement, that he has loved us because he has loved us, and he gets most glory in loving us. 
We need the good news that all of our labor in this life is not pointless. That there is coming an age when we will be with Jesus in his kingdom, rewarded beyond our wildest expectation. Christ City, we need that good news this afternoon. We live in a failure culture. We live in a culture where our mistakes are amplified. Our sins are announced to the whole world. How do we escape this? How do we free ourselves from the cold reality of our functional karma? It is only in reminding ourselves of the good news. It is only in reminding ourselves of the grace extended to us in Jesus. It is only in looking at his unmerited love and favor towards us, his gracious gift towards us. Christ said he hear the grace of the gospel this afternoon. See, not only does this good news allow us to get out of bed in the morning, it frees us actually to sow the Spirit in every sphere or field of our lives. Consider with me first the field of the church. Galatians 6, 6 says this. If you have your Bible, look with me. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who uh, teaches. At the risk of making things a little bit awkward here for a second, let's just make plain what Paul is saying here. He's saying you should financially reimburse the person who labors in teaching and preaching. He's not saying you just pat them on the back. All right, good job, sport. He's saying you should financially reimburse the person who labors in teaching and preaching. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elder who who rules well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Again, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9, listen, we didn't take advantage of that, but it would not have been wrong for us to do so. Taken together, these passages lead us to conclude that in the field of the church, the teacher is the one who is to faithfully sow the word. Notice that. Not his personality, not his clever thoughts and ideas, but the teacher is the one who is to faithfully sow what? The word. The word. And in return, the teacher, the preacher, they are to reap for themselves a living, a wage. That's what Paul says. Now, let me nuance this so you all don't freak out. Are there certain preachers and teachers who have taken passages like this and, and used them to justify a lavish, extravagant, and, and, and really an unbiblical lifestyle? Absolutely. 100%. That is one ditch that we can fall into here. But there's another ditch as well. And that's the churches who have seen passages like this abused. Seen First Timothy abused. Seen First Corinthians 9 abused and said, hey, We're going to adopt a poverty mindset towards those who labor in teaching and preaching. We're going to reject the office of vocational teaching teaching and preaching altogether. There are two ditches here that we want to avoid, so we have to walk forward in wisdom. I, I don't want to labor here too long, Christ City, because you get this. How do I know you get this? Because you gave so that we could plant a church in East Vancouver for the purposes of proclamation ministry. 
that you gave so that we could start a seminary in Vietnam to enable hundreds of proclaimers, hundreds of indigenous proclaimers. Right? You, you get this. You, you understand this. But I want to make one point here. What is heavily implied by Paul here is this one really simple fact. It's a centrality of teaching and preaching ministry in the life of a church. Indeed, Paul said, you, you can't really have a church, you can't really have a people if there is no teaching or preaching ministry. Now, this can look like this. It can look like community group. It can look one-on-one. But if there's no teaching and, 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 and sharing of the word of God with one another, then we are not the church. We, we are something else. We're some sort of multi-tiered organization selling you our own gospel. Galatians 6, 6 is evidence of Paul in the first century valuing the word of God and the role it has to play in shaping, leading, guiding, encouraging, rebuking the church. We must always be about the faithful proclamation of the word of God. We have to. We have to, Christ City. So that's one way we see sowing and reaping in the field of the church. That as a teacher sows the word, they are to be financially compensated. But there's another way in our passage. There's another example of sowing and reaping in the field of the church. In Galatians 6.10, Paul writes there, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and, and look at this with me, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And especially to those who are of the household of, of faith. I think given the familial language Paul has used so far in Galatians, we should not be surprised by a metaphor like the household of faith. Uh, Paul uses it again in Ephesians 2. He calls it the household of God, the church, the household of God. We've been told so far, right, we're adopted children, right? We're adopted children. He used that children language. And now he's called us brothers and sisters who are to bear one another's burdens. And so finally he concludes, listen, big picture here, we're the household of faith. We're a family, the household of God. And the principle here is, is really simple. It's really simple, but it's really hard. Family first. Family first. Let me explain. Doing good will not, remain, will not only remain in the family, it just has to start with the family. We'll, we'll see this in a bit, so don't freak out. Some of you are freaking out right now. What about the people out there? Just hold on a second. Doing good will not remain in the family. It just has to start in the family. Now, I think this principle is helpful uh, uh, on a number of, of levels. But if there's one particular way that this principle is helpful, it's helpful in this way. It guards us, and it guards me, and it guards others who teach and preach and who lead community groups and all those sorts of things. It guards us from being a monster in our own homes— and a saint in public. A monster with our own family, a monster with those who know us best, and just a smiling, happy person when it's public time, when it's stage time. Paul says family first. It's interesting when Paul outlines the qualifications for elders, overseers in First Timothy, one of those qualifications for overseers, for elders, is that they first manage their household well. Because if you can't lead, if you can't serve, if you can't encourage, if you can't spur on your own family first, you shouldn't be doing that in the church. Paul says family first. 
Now, here's where the rubber meets the road for many of us. In your mind, you are thinking of people uh, who are on the margins right now outside of the church community, and that's good. And we'll see in a bit that that's great. And you're thinking of them, and what should we do about them, and love them, and serve them. And, and you think about them actually quite often. But you haven't given a second thought for the person two rows in front of you, or the person two rows behind you. You don't actually give a rip about the church. You don't actually care about the people who are part of the household of faith. Again, we'll see. We should think of those outside the church. But do we love each other well? Christ said East Vancouver, we're just starting out here. This is a good text for us. This is a good text for me. Do we love one another well? Do we know what the people two rows behind us are going through? How have we texted them to meet their needs this week? Do we love one another well? I pray, and I know many of you pray, that we would be a community that loves one another well. See, we are to sow the good seed of service to one another if we want to reap good things in the field of the church. This is true in the field of our personal lives as well. Verse 8 says this. Read verse 8 with me. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We've already seen how the phrases reap corruption and reap eternal life have with them the implications of eternal destiny. We've already seen how this passage is intended to act as a warning to us. That if we persist in sowing to the flesh, we will reap eternal destruction. But now I want us to consider how do we actually do these things? How do we actually sow to the Spirit? How do we actually sow to the flesh? In many ways, Paul, like a lot of the Galatians, as if we're a stiff-necked people, a hard-hearted people, he's just repeating what he's already said. Remember he already said this? Crucify the flesh and keep in step with the Spirit. Sow to the Spirit and don't sow to the flesh. Crucify the flesh, keep in step with the Spirit. He's just saying what he's already said so far. But now, as he adds this farming picture, this farming metaphor for us, he lets us in on a really, really, really helpful secret. And do you want to hear that secret? Nobody cares. The secret is this. I'm going to say it anyways, because it's in my notes. The more we sow to the Spirit, the more Spirit we reap. The more we sow to the flesh, the more flesh we reap. This sounds really obvious. If you plant garbage, you get a harvest of garbage. If you sow to the Spirit, you get a harvest of the Spirit. Some of you today are confused by your current state of being. You're stale, you're impassionate, uh, you're cold-hearted, uh, you're generally disinterested in life, in the church, in Jesus, you don't really care. Further to that, more than that, you're ravaged by the same habitual sins time after time after time after time. What Paul is saying here, and please don't miss this, if you only hear this, hear this. The fruit of your life that you experience today, right now, it began yesterday when you sowed to the flesh. It began yesterday as you harbored that grudge. It began yesterday as you nursed that grievance. It began yesterday as you entertained and indulged that fantasy. 
You are reaping what you have sown. And we should not be surprised by that. Others of you spent yesterday sowing to the Spirit. Though your bed cried out for more sleep, you disciplined yourself to get up and meet with God. Though that impure fantasy crept into your mind, instead of indulging it, you took that thought captive and stopped it in its tracks. In the best possible way, you are reaping what you have sown. Many people have said this, but I heard it from John Stott. Holiness is a harvest. We are impatient people. We want God to zap us with holiness. Boom, Christ-likeness. Boom, Christian maturity. But holiness is the harvest. Holiness is the fruit of time after time after time after time after time, choosing to sow to the Spirit and not sow to the flesh. Holiness is a harvest. There's an old adage that isn't necessarily Christian, but I think it's entirely true. Maybe you heard it. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. That is sowing and reaping in our own personal lives. Christ City, are you sowing to the Spirit and thus reaping the Spirit, reaping eternal life, or are you sowing to the flesh? Last, sowing and reaping in the broader world, in our broader community. In verse 10, Paul says this. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Verse 10 is motivated by verse 9. Because of the heavenly rewards waiting for us, you should do good to everyone. You should do good to everyone. All all, all people, because of the heavenly rewards waiting for you, you should do good to all people. Yes, we start with the household of God, but we do not end with the household of God. We are to do good for all people. And when I say all people, like really hear me on that. I mean all people. I'm not just speaking sort of, you know, like hyperbolically or or metaphorically, but, but all people. Does the person bear the image of God? Do good to them. That's the idea here. How many of us know the needs of our neighbors? How, how many of us know the needs of Hastings Sunrise? Know the brokenness that we're going to encounter, indeed have been encountering as we meet and love and serve those people. How many of us know the signature sins of those in our neighborhood, those in our community, the, the idols of their heart? How many of us are actively involved in trying to meet those needs with the resources we've been given? Please don't hear this as me condemning you. I'm talking to myself here. If I can speak really generally for a second, generally speaking, certainly isn't true of all churches, but generally speaking, in the North American church, we have two camps. The first camp is those who believe true things and those who do true things. Those who believe uh, true things, the second camp is those who do true things. Those who believe true things. We love our theology. We love our good doctrine. And we look down at other churches who don't have our theology, our, our doctrine, sort of our, our gospel teaching, our gospel centrality. All the while we sit on our hands and do nothing. Nothing. 
The second church, those who, who, who do good things, well they, well, they minimize theology, minimize the gospel, minimize Jesus, minimize sin, minimize repentance. Yeah, yeah, like don't really worry about that stuff. They're all about doing true things. And let's just be honest for a second. How are they any different than a secular nonprofit? Like they're not. They're the exact same thing. We have those who believe true things and those who do true things. Friends, we have to be both of those. We have to be those who both believe and do true things. Galatians 1 to 4 is all about the gospel. It's all about what you should believe as a follower of Jesus. Galatians 5 through 6 is all about what you should do in response to the gospel. We have to be, and hear me here, Galatians 1 through 6 people. God does not afford us the luxury of cutting Galatians in half and saying, I like to believe stuff, or I like the doing stuff. We have to be both. We have to be both. Because Jesus became a curse for you, Galatians 1 through 4, you too now are to serve others in the same way that Jesus has served you, both in the household of faith and outside in, in the world. And Paul says we are to do all this when? When are we to do this? As we have opportunity. And some of you are like, nice. I haven't had any opportunities lately. We can kind of just chill out here for a second. It's not really about me, actually. I've had no opportunities. It's kind of waiting for that opportunity. Remember that Galatians 6 through 10 is framed within this age and the age to come. So as we have opportunity means this. As long as you're not dead. Like, do you have a pulse? Has Jesus returned yet? Now is your opportunity. Today is your opportunity. If you're listening to me right now and you're not dead, maybe this is a super boring sermon and you're dead right now. But if you have a pulse, that Jesus is talking about you, Paul is talking about you, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those in the household of faith. Why? 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 Because, and we cannot hear this too many times, God cannot be mocked. Hey, you can fool me easily. You can fool one another. And you're particularly good at fooling yourself. But God cannot be mocked. He cannot be fooled. And there is coming a day when he will lay all hearts bare. When he will see all the truth of everything. When he will know exactly what you sowed, whether to the spirit or to the flesh. Friends, God cannot be mocked. And I don't know if we believe that. I think we think he's on vacation or something or watching somebody else or interested in, in some other community. God cannot be mocked. Motivated then by the life to come, how are you faithfully sowing seeds of service in the church? How are you loving one another? Do you know what the person in the row in front of you is going through? Do you know what the person in the row behind you is going through? Motivated by the life to come, how are you sowing to the Spirit in your life? Or are you sowing to the flesh? It's not rocket science. Plant spirit, get spirit. Plant flesh, get more flesh. Eternal life, eternal destruction. Motivated by the life to come, how are you sowing good deeds to all people? Indeed, how will we be a community who is known for our good deeds in Hastings Sunrise? 
known for the way in which you come alongside the broken and the marginalized in our community. I, I don't profess to have this figured out, but this is the word of the Lord and we have to respond. Would you stand with me now to that end? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.